Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you are listening to Close Reads podcast for the incurable reader. Now brought to you by Goldberry Studios. Say that for the first time. That's so exciting. We are Wait, here. David, what? Yeah. Um, what? Yeah. Um, <laughs> We've been you, taken over? Yeah, we sold to a Russian, a, a Russian conglomerate. <laughs> that they is act- a joke. Anybody listening? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's not true. <laughs> yeah, so if you, um, if you are not in the Facebook group or didn't get our email list, you might have missed, uh, or how would I just say? I don't know what I just said. If you're not in the Facebook group or don't receive the email because you're not on the email list is what I meant to say, then you might have missed the news that Close Reads is going to be part of a new company that uh, I'm starting. My wife and I are starting. We started Goldberry Books, as you probably know. And within that company, there is uh, going to be Goldberry Studios. So we're going to be providing podcast services and publishing services alongside selling books. And we're creating a little suite of podcasts. My dad and Matt Bianco and the Cersei team were uh, super kind and generous to let us um, essentially purchase, (laughs) transfer ownership of Close Reads and the Daily Poem over to Goldberry Studios. So it's all love with Cersei. There's no kind of like conflict or anything. It's just some opportunities for Bethany and I to do some things we've been dream- dreaming of doing for a long time. Um, if you want to learn more about that, you can uh, head over to uh, closereads.substack.com or check out the Facebook page where we have the announcement there. So I'll leave that, you know, to that announcement in terms of the explanation. But, um, you know, from now on, you'll be hearing the name Goldberry Studios attached to close reads and the daily poem and some other things that we have coming, including a podcast for younger readers that we're going to be launching uh, here very, very soon. So as soon as we figure out a name for it, we just can't figure that part out. Names are hard. <laughs> um, we thought about calling it the Tim McIntosh pod and then just Tim's never actually on it. It's just called the Tim McIntosh pod yeah. because I felt like that lent some mystery. And then yeah. like after like six months, he could show up, but he comes on for like 30 seconds, tells a joke or gives a pun and then disappears again. Ooh, um, kind of like a where is Waldo right. sort of scenario. Right. Exactly. I like it. Exactly, mm-hmm. yeah. Like, a, like an absent figurehead. Yeah, oh. exactly. Kind of like swoops in with some inspiring Wisdom. message. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, yes. Although in this case, a pun. Um, right. Although pun and puns and could, could, could also be wise. You could have a wise pun, I suppose. Well, we are here to discuss Death Comes for the Archbishop. We're going to talk about books two and three. Uh, Tim, did you have something you want to say? Well, I just wanted to mention while we were on the subject of kind of like the um, new your production wisdom, wisdom. team, I wanted to just like throw out a pun. No, I wanted to say <laughs> that uh, the plays, the thing is going to kind of remain underneath the Circe umbrella. It'll be produced by David and Bethany's company. Um, but I just wanted to mention that and the, we'll have the same kind of group of contributors, Mm -hmm. Heidi, we're going to have Andrew, uh, David's dad on for Hamlet. Sarah Jane is planning on being part of Romeo and Juliet. Uh, Matt Bianco, Bianco, the shrew and a couple of surprise additions for other, for other plays. Yep, that'll be on the Cersei Podcast Network. Yeah, yeah. And we're partnering, Goldberry Studios is still partnering with Cersei and the Cersei Podcast Network to help make their shows. So I'll still be working with Cersei, um, just kind of more on a project basis instead of, you know, all day, every day type of scenario, um, which will give us a chance to grow the store and do some things that, like I said, we've been wanting to do. And then hopefully, um, you know, still allow Cersei to do great stuff like um, have Tim 
host that plays the thing along with a you know great uh, uh along with his comrades I, I believe is the is the phrase that his is comrade in arms who will be discussing shakespeare still no russian no takeover russian interference we repeat listeners no <laughs> russian collusion to be fair people who are you know maybe engaged with some russian collusion would also reinforce that excessively that they are not <laughs> involved really, with the David? russians oh sorry was sorry I'm not, I'm not helping your cover. Okay, no, let's move on. Yeah. Um, okay, so Willa Cather's death comes for the Archbishop. Cather, like gather. I still I have to remind myself of that all the time. Stumble over that one. <clears throat> so, again, we're here to discuss books two and three. I believe book two was called Missionary Journeys, and I believe book three is called The Mass at Ancoma. I, I'm, that's off my from memory, so I probably got that wrong. Um, but I have a question for you guys as we kind of dive into this. I'm sure you'll each have passages you want to read and um, plenty of um, things that you want to talk about. But last week we talked about the sort of episodic nature of this book. And um, I, I want to ask a question about that because I, I got to thinking why these particular episodes? So when you have a book that's episodic, the author is making choices to not to to leave things out, right? They're leaving they're making choices about when to end an episode and why to include an episode. Um I was struck in particular by like when the parts ended, like when part 2 and part 3, when do they why do they end the way that they do? So the question that I would like to start this episode with um to see if you guys can help me out here is why does Willa Cather choose the particular episodes that she chooses in other words is there a thread that is connecting these Mm. series of episodes that we're getting i think that when we think about episodic stories one of the things that can leave us um, a little bit disoriented is as we said last week there's a sort of plotlessness to it right but when done well there can still be threads that almost operate in the same psychological way that a plot does Mm. where it's pointing us towards sort of a unifying theme or some kind of unifying principle or something that helps bring it, bring it together. Now we're only th- 114 pages or so, three parts into this book, but is there anything that you're seeing so far that points towards unifying principles or common threads or something like that? Um, I was kind of rambling there for a second because Heidi was need- needed to move rooms. So now that she's finally sat down in the other room, I'm going to turn to her first and make her nice. answer. Thank you. Now that she's it's she just to drive she to run somebody to, to Russian collusion. I know she had to Stop. run to the other room, so she's probably out of breath now. So I, th- I feel like the, the it'd just be the most fun to make her answer now. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So I record from home, and I have all my home is like fraught with all of these problems. <laughs> so. I just turned off my heater because I was making too much noise. And then the water filter turned on and it was like gurgling in the background to like filter it. So anyway. You are living in a Siberian camp right now. So. I, right. <laughs> so it's just an endless amount of Collegiate. relentless. We know. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, okay. So I like this question a lot. Then the episodic nature, I think because I've, read this book before and love it so much. I'm I am finding more and more threads of connection between the episodes, things that I didn't catch the first time. Um, but the unifying principle is less plot, I think. It's um and more 
the idea of <laughs> of memory, you mentioned last week, David, about uh, that this has some elements of a memory novel, and it's not necessarily a straightforward memory novel, um, but it, I think that that, that idea of, of these, that it's telling a story less in a linear fashion and more in an episodic fashion, but it's telling the story of this man's ministry um, and the great work of his life. And in doing that, there were, you're, he's, the narrator then is, she, Willa Cather, the narrator, the, the author is relying more on these big moments uh, that, that have contributed to the great work of Latour's, of Bishop Latour's life. Um, and, and, and in that way, um, like these kind of explosions of memory, these, these major moments that contribute to, uh, you know, the, the title, right, death comes from the archbishop. So are these things that he's remembering as he's dying becomes the question of the novel then. Um, when you look back on a life, what are the things you remember? You don't think about your life as this unfolding story. You think about episodes in your life. Mm. Um, none of us are on our deathbed, so we don't know that for sure. But um, I think that it, it, it stands to reason that you're going to call to mind things like these episodes of your life that have led you to, to, to finish or to be in the midst of the great work. Mm. Um, and I think that that contributes to the episodic nature. Mm. This, this book is, we've talked about it being a memory book. It's so, the, the structure of the prose is so clear to me mm. that I am reluctant to put it in the category of a memory novel. Um, but on the other hand, I think what Heidi just said is right. There's something about like, it's easy for me to imagine uh, Bishop Latour, Archbishop Latour looking back on his life and remembering certain glimmering, shimmering moments remember when we were traveling across the country and we met the woman, you know, um, but there's, so I, I kind of feel a little bit conflicted about uh, it being a memory novel. And I don't hear either one of you guys like arguing that that's really what's going on. Um, I'm just saying it's kind of in that kind of, that, kind of a strange space for me because in some ways plot wise, it does seem like a memory novel but the structure and orderliness of the prose does not strike me as a memory novel. Mm -hmm. So um, to your question, David, as I've been reading through this book again, the thing that I keep coming back to is um, it seems to me like these episodes have, if they have a common theme, it might be, regaining or establishing order mm. and That's interesting what i mean by that is i've been thinking a lot about um maybe the difference between what i think of as a typical protestant mission or maybe even an lds what i think was a typical lds mission um and what i think of as the mission of this book and i think that protestants evangelicals and maybe people from the LDS church might think of the chief purpose of a mission is to speak and spread the word. Hmm. It seems like for Latour, that's one part of the mission, but it's a minor part of the mission. His mission is about 
the establishment or reestablishment of order and the unification of disparate parts of the church underneath the capital C Catholic Universal Church. So one of the things we keep getting is this, these digressions, right? So for example, at the end of book three, we get this digression, which is the story that Father Jesus tells him about the, the 17th century priest or 18th century priest who is cruel, but he builds these gardens, right? And then they, he ends up getting thrown over the cliff. And it's pretty long. It's For this book, it's a fairly long chapter. It's 20 pages maybe or something like that. But it's definitely a digression. It doesn't yeah. carry forward Latour's life at all. And, but for some reason, it stood out in his memory. And that's why I think it feels like a memory novel. Because it feels like he's drawing upon things that don't always make sense. That Why, why does this appear? So are the digressions then supposed to, such as the one I just mentioned, supposed to suggest sort of um, disorder or lawlessness or um, the absence of the things that, that Latour is trying to create and then subsequently trying to preserve? I, I'm going to um, uh, reluctantly argue yes. And I say reluctantly because I'm still kind of, my memory thinking. of, I'm still thinking of it, but also because my memory of my first reading of this book is so hazy. I'm a little bit reluctant to draw really firm conclusions based on an old reading from many years ago. Um, but it, it does kind of seem that way to me. It seems to me like we are, I'm starting to see a thread that this kind of like back and forth or this sort of dichotomy between order and disorder seems to me really bright. And I did some extracurricular reading this week. So I, I, I want to just throw a couple of things in there. I, I've got a two volume set by Sidney Alstrom, A-H-L-S-T-R-O-M, The Religious History of the American People. And I kind of wanted to find out what's going on in the Southwest of the United States during this time. And okay, it is so interesting. It's, it's really interesting. And I think it's kind of shaping my reading. So I don't know if that's fair or not, but I just want to read one paragraph. So the book kind of begins very end of the 1840s in Rome. And then in the, in North America, it begins in 1851. Mm -hmm. So this is from Alstrom's book. Amid the anti-clericalism, and political disorder of the early decades of Mexican rule, the state of the church deteriorated still further. With the province of New Mexico, including Heidi, Colorado, Utah, Nevada, and most of Arizona, um, became part of the United States in 1848. It had a population of about 60,000, perhaps half of which were Spanish or Mestizo. 20 or more priests were serving the area but the missions were, still, were in near total disorganization. Two years later, the vic oh gosh, I'm embarrassed. I'm gonna really butcher this word. The vicariate, V-I-C-A-R-I-A-T-E of New Mexico was erected to order the church's affairs in the region. Now listen to this sentence, you guys. Chosen to direct the task was a French-born priest, then serving in Kentucky, Jean-Baptiste Lamy. When he resigned as Archbishop in 1875, he reported 56 priests and 203 places of worship in his vast province. So we went from 20 priests to 56 priests just during his time. 
And I was like, wow, let me, that really overlaps really neat with our book. And so I did a little bit more research and Lemmy is the model for our main character. Yeah. You knew this, Heidi. Yeah, I did. Um, and I'm, I'm on the fence about whether or not it's helpful in reading the book. Yeah. I mean, I think it's fascinating. I think it's interesting. Right. But what I would, I would not like a conversation about this book. I don't think it's helpful or useful for a conversation about the book to be a comparison of uh, Willick Hather's fictionalized version of, of Lafie's life compared to his actual historical life. Yeah. She's, she's doing something very different. She's not, this isn't historical fiction. And I didn't mention anything about it last week um, for that purpose. I think that it's really easy then to make it like a comparison side by side, this guy's life and this guy's life. And I think she's doing something a little different than that. But I think that that's really interesting. Yeah. And um, I, I think it's a brilliant idea for creating a novel like this. This is just a unique novel all around. And I, I think that that definitely adds a depth of interest to it. Yeah, it was, you mentioned the idea of it's not historical fiction. And yet you have characters like Kit Carson show up right, right? yeah who is one and of the, the pope will show up later yeah right yep the, i mean kit carson is one of the legends of western lore right and she makes this very makes him into this very human sort of doubting uh character even just this brief time that we see him and uh so it does have aspects of historical fiction i mean and then of course the places themselves are real like you can go on wikipedia and you can see pictures recent pictures of the of uh, a coma which is mm-hmm. you know i mean like it's it, so, so so we can spend a lot of time trying to do that historical deep dive if we want um i think seeing the landscape someone posted some beautiful photos photos on uh on the facebook page that really bring it bring it to life especially because i think a lot of americans probably haven't been to new mexico it's probably one of those places that's tim you've been there yeah um and how you've been there, right? Yeah. I drive by Alcamo every time I go visit my parents. Mm. Oh, really? It's, really? it's stunning. Yeah. It's, yeah. But, so like, I've never been there. Um, I lived in Idaho, but I never went to New Mexico. And there's like, it, it still has a sort of wildness to it in my imagination. Yes. A sense of like, not, an, not a disorder or an uncivilization or something, but that there's a, there are some vestiges of... of um, the frontier. It's the, the frontier. frontier still. That's, yeah. that's right. Yeah. And so... To see those images helps bring alive a landscape that I've only ever seen in Western movies or in documentaries, right? And uh, so I think paying attention to those things can be really helpful in terms of opening up our imaginations to it. But I also think that these historical characters, they've got to be telling us something about what her purpose was. Like, why did she bring in a real person like, which Pope, uh, which pope was it? Um, Is it? Pope Gregory the 16th. Is that right? I think so. So why does she bring in a character, which we haven't gotten to yet, but why does she bring him and why does she bring a character like Kit Carson into it? Um, like, what do you think she's after, if not trying to say this is historical fiction? I think she's exploring the authentic American experience, mm. right? When we read Kit Carson on stage, so to speak, with Bishop Latour, it's, it, it adds, like, it orients us, right? We're like, oh, I know who that guy is. Like, it, it, it has this 
sense of an of awakening interest because even if this wild landscape and this clash of cultures and this kind of uh even if that's unfamiliar to your American experience, you've heard of Kit Carson and you've, you know, so it, it's inclusive to the reader, I think. Um, and I think she is after exploring what does it mean to be an American? What is, what is the authentic American experience? What's this, uh, this primal identity as an American, this thing that we're still carrying with us, even if we have no idea what it's like to live in the Southwest, right? Mm. But what is it that unifies us? And names like Kit Carson um, and the Pope um, are, you know, those are, those are two, um, you know, archetypal identifiers for two different types of cultures. And she is exploring what happens when, when cultures meet and clash and have conflict and care about each other and love each other and see each other. There's just this, and, and again, that speaks also to the episodic nature of the novel, um, that it's almost like one story isn't enough. You need episodes, you need kind of these complete, um, and each of the episodes has this sense of, completion to it like there's nothing else to add once you hear that story about the bishop or excuse me the priest being thrown off the wall that's such a brilliant brilliant story um and like it has this quality of myth or fairy tale to it Mm -hmm. that just expresses this um this cultural universal truth and then you got to kind of move on and tell another story because that's the whole story Um, it certainly pushes the book towards being about the place more than anything else because we're getting tales of the place itself and we, but we're not getting his reaction to that. So we, you said that there's nothing else to tell in a lot of these episodes. And that's really interesting idea because I find myself in almost at the end of almost every chapter, basically being like, that's it. You stopped there. That's such an interesting (laughs) choice. Yeah. Like, you know, and then like the one that you mentioned there certainly is, a uh, complete tale, right? It's a complete short story. Um, and we, we don't get it, but we don't, we also don't get his response to the right. father Hastings telling him the story, but we get a lot of scenes where, you know, it's just this, he, he'll, he's obviously with a village for two weeks or something and we get some small portion of it. And then it just stops. And then the chapter ends in the next day. It's like, well, and then four months later he was in the next place. So I, I do find that to be a little bit, disorienting in a way. Am yes. I, is, do you feel, do you, you feel that way too? I do. I agree with that completely. I even felt, um, this is why I think this is, this novel defies, um, being like penned down to certain genre. Like you, Tim, what you said, it's not really a memory novel. It's third person. It couldn't be yeah, a memory novel, person. but it has, yes, but it has elements of this idea of episodic memory and contributing to the great work of one man. And then, but, it's also has like that story about the the priest being thrown off um, is, I mean, that almost does have like a very um, like folktale myth, fairy tale kind of yeah. feel to it. And then you have on the other side, this crazy story about this abused woman who's rescued, right? Runs away when the priests come and, and, and that almost has like a journalistic quality to it. Mm. There's so much left unsaid. It's just the bare facts of this, like very, very um, frightening and traumatic experience of this woman and it even tells you what happens you know later she goes and she lives in this convent and she becomes tells you her whole life story and then moves on 
Um, so there's all different kinds of voices um, and narrators and different types of stories that are included, which I think makes it a very comprehensive kind of volume of this particular cultural moment that's explored and from various different kinds of tales. Hmm. There's a, um, I think a, an analogy between this book. Okay. And I, of course, I'm going to make a Russian literature illusion. It both fits like the branding for this particular show and my own particular brand. Um, you really need one, to get the new George Saunders book. Really? <laughs> Why is that? Oh, because it's a, it involves Russians, right? Yeah, he, he writes about, I think, four or five, five Russian short stories that he's been teaching for 30 years and at the university level and how it teaches him about writing and telling stories. Oh, nice. Yeah. Anyway, carry on. War and Peace is similar to Death Comes to the Archbishop in this way. Real historical characters, very prominent historical characters, show up within this fictional work. Like Napoleon is one of the stars of War and Peace. And he's surrounded by generals who are actual generals who fought in the battle between the French and the Russians. And yet the majority of the plot is driven by fictional, three fictional families. So there was so much question when War and Peace came out about like, hey, Leo, what are we supposed did to do know with Napoleon? this book? Yeah, yeah, did you know Napoleon? Does he really like that? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so Tolstoy did a, like a little, not a summary, but he gave a kind of a defense of the genre or an explanation for the genre that is war and peace. And he acknowledged what everybody was saying is true. Yeah, I've got both fictional characters, fictional families surrounded by real generals and Napoleon himself, and the czar of Russia. So what is the genre of war and peace? He said, he said, and I'm paraphrasing, it is... Uh, an apparatus that I invented to suit the purposes of the author. Hmm. I made a genre <laughs> that kind of blends a couple of other genres. And I did it because I had a goal in mind for War and Peace. And so to fit that goal, I made a, a genre. I kind of wonder if that's what we've got here with Death Comes to the Archbishop, Heidi, if mm-hmm. she's just made a genre. And I'm not trying to make it sound like, like she's just like doing something crazy. Oh my gosh. Because yeah, no in a lot of ways, it reads very straight, it's a very straightforward fictional novel. Mm-hmm. But she's just doing something different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's the way she, like the narrators are third person, as you guys said, and, and they're omniscient. So there's a sort of like an all knowingness to it, which makes it so it can't be a memory novel, but then the way she puts the scenes together have the, the um, effect, a similar effect of what a memory novel might have. Mm. Mm -hmm. So that that's, it's for, I wasn't necessarily trying to say like, this is the genre that the book is so much as this book has a number of, has the same effect as a number of different genres. So on the one hand, it has the effects of great historical fiction. It has the effect of great nature writing. It has the effect of what a memory novel can have on us in terms of how it sort of shapes our experience. Uh, And so not a lot of books can tread on so many different paths without losing track of what they're doing. You know, there's a sort of deftness to, a skill, you know, it's a skill, the, the way she's able to weave different, um, or if not different genres, the, the way different genres work on a reader into one book. 
Um, I, and see, so on the one hand, you've got like the way legend and historical fiction can play with you, play on, play on your psyche as a reader. And then you've got the sort of the way a memory novel can confuse you, can leave you feeling a little pulled, pulled around, right? Um, mm-hmm. I don't know what the phrase is exactly. Um, and then you've got the nature writing where the prose is so beautiful at times. It's mm-hmm. so beautiful. It's so beautiful. And it feels the undulations of it just kind of whisk you along like, like really, really good nature writing or really good travel writing or really good memoir does. And she puts all that together. Yeah. And when and, Kit Carson shows up, you don't miss a beat. To your point, you don't yeah, miss a beat. Right, it, it, right. it doesn't seem strange. It doesn't yeah. seem forced. It's so natural. And in fact, I found myself, she doesn't tell right away who he is. And I found myself asking. Were you guessing? Yeah. Wait, is, that, is, he, is she talking about... She's she talking about Kit Carson, and then yeah. eventually you kind of yeah. come to it, and she doesn't come right out and say, "Nice to meet you, I'm Kit Carson." You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and the way she drops it is so it <laughs> I'm, like a, I'm a frontier legend, Kit Carson. <laughs> <laughs> and then he offered me a sturdy handshake, co-starring <laughs> Kit Carson. <laughs> <laughs> this episode featuring, um, so she's there's a there's just a great skill, um, that that Willa Cather has. I mean, it's not like I'm not saying anything that's that's other people out there are like, man, nope. We'll gather just hot garbage. <laughs> <laughs> this guy's a fool. I'm not saying anything that like people don't agree with, right? Like she, she is one of the American, mm-hmm. the central figures of 20th century American literature and literature west of the Mississippi. So I don't want to act like what I'm saying is some kind of genius thing. I'm just saying what other people have said in my own poor way. Um, go, go, yeah, go ahead. I want to make one more historical, just like a little bit of a historical overview of what's going on. And then I promise I'll try to leave it alone. I don't know that I'll actually be able to. I just, I'm we all have our own interests. Yeah. I'm just a little bit of a nerd about like finding kind of like, I think when history augments your reading of a novel, I just enjoy it so much more when it, overwhelms your reading of the novel and you do something like Heidi was warning us against, like how much of this is like a real, um, how much of, of the story of father Latour is taken from the actual pages of history. And it's actually Mr. Like priest LeMay, LeMay. Um, that's boring. I think that suffocates a novel and it doesn't let the novel sing with its own voice. But I think if a book like this can sometimes be served by a little bit of historical context, and I think the historical context of what's going on in the Catholic church at this moment in the middle of the 19th century is really interesting because America is a major problem in the Catholic church. I mean, I think the bigger problem is a problem that I think the Catholic Church is wrestling with right now, which is the forces of tradition and the forces of progressivism. And these two things are sort of like being the church is trying to keep its arms around these two forces. So well, I'm going to read another. What do you do when um, tradition is when you're trying to bring tradition to a culture that is fundamentally resistant to the traditions exactly. that you're trying to bring to them? Exactly. It has right, its own right. traditions. I mean, Acoma, the native people have been living there for two thousand years. Exactly. Exactly. Go, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I mean it's a, it's a it's a totally it's mm-hmm. it's the point. I think that like I, I'm starting to wonder if maybe this is what 
Willa Cather is trying to articulate? What if, um, what if Father Latour is actually kind of a voice for tradition, like the civilizing and organizing influence of tradition, the health of tradition? I'm just positing that as a possibility. So let me just read a couple of paragraphs from this uh, Sidney Alstrom's Religious History of the American People. So this is on page 301 of volume two. The heading is An American Problem. An institutional crisis usually involves conflict between radically opposed proposals for present and future action. The Roman Catholic Americanism crisis was no exception. The crisis, as we shall see, was a complex of at least a dozen interconnected questions, but it is punctuated by the clash of two opposing groups or factions. Then Alstrom goes out and kind of describes, like, this is the American faction. It's led by this group of people. This is the kind of institutional slash traditional faction, and it's led by these groups of people. Then a little bit later, allied with these groups was a large body of conservatives, clearly a majority, among the Irish clergy, who had so long defined themselves by their opposition to the Anglo-Saxon culture that anything but almost the utilitarian kinds of participation in American life seemed to imply a betrayal of their heritage. So a lot of the Irish clergy, Irish um, Catholic clergy at this time are kind of, they're more siding with the traditionalist forces. And I just find it interesting that in the prologue of the book, it's an Irish priest who is advocating for Father Latour, which lends a little bit of credence to my suggestion that what if Father Latour is like, what if his goal is it's organization and it's the instantiation of the Catholic tradition on this kind of American wilderness that is like really foreign, both in temperament and in geography to the kind of organizing impulse of the Catholic church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I agree. We are talking about, an institutional church uh, with headquarters in Rome and then a sacramental life to spread throughout the world. Um, to your point, it's not, it's not the same as what the Protestants would think of as evangelism or missionary work. It's not just, hey, do you accept Jesus Christ as your personal right. Lord and Savior, right? Um, this is the, the building of churches, the marriages, marriages and baptisms and um, bringing together within a common language. And it's also uh, we um, another layer of complexity to exactly what you're saying is that the, this is an area that has already been um, evangelized in the in, by the Catholic Church, by the Spanish during the time of the conquistadors. And so you have this mixture of Spanish Catholicism uh, that's very old. And as we keep seeing over and over again in this novel, there it's really hard to travel at this time. Mm. It takes a really long time to get anywhere, to get any news anywhere, to arrive anywhere. It takes him six months to go to a conference and get back. Right. 
which we saw at, at, uh, in this reading. And so it's not, there's nobody texting back and forth trying to figure out what to do about the church up in Akamo, right? That the, the hey, and, bro, um, where are you at? Yes, it's, it is, uh, this is a, a very difficult uh, and challenging landscape. It's a very difficult and challenging work. Um, and he's cut off from the old world um, with the exception of being able to take and receive messages a few times a year. And so there's, it is, it's very complex and, and you, we do have a very established Catholic culture here, but it's mixed in with the Indian culture, the native cultures, and it is fraught with corruption as we keep seeing with Padre Gallegos and, um, the priest whose name I can't remember from the story that we read, what, who was thrown off the side of the cliff. What's that guy's name? And I can't remember guy. either, Heidi. Yeah, that guy. So um, it's not it's not easy what he's doing. Plus, the landscape and the climate is really harsh. Um, and I I find you know it's funny because just on a personal level, I find this book like incredibly soothing to read. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like it's like very peaceful, but it doesn't describe anything peaceful at all. Like, and, and that's why I find it just really interesting because it is a very complex set of dynamics, politics, religion, um, personal internal issues of the, the individual characters. Um, and yet there's something incredibly soothing about it. So I was thinking about that this week and this morning I was thinking, I think it's because these, it, I think it's partly because Bishop Latour and Father Vaillant are like, they're good men. So I'm not like worried about them going off the rails. And then secondly, it's because they're so single-minded. Like there's, like they are, they are there to build the kingdom. They are there to build the church. And there's, even though their life is hard and complex and they're, they're, you know, stuck in the middle of this very nuanced and complex dynamics, yet they know exactly who they are and exactly what they're doing, and they're just doing it. Mm-hmm. And I find that very soothing. One of the things that I think is interesting about what Tim was saying and that you're then following up on is that <clears throat> when you look at the history that Tim's pointing to, it can help us identify what the problem of the book is like, Mm. or the central theme, because it can help us say, this is, this is the world that she's talking about. And the more we know about that world, you know, we can look at that history without turning it into an interpretive exercise where it becomes the guideline by which we try to, you know, create one-to-one correlations for the things that she's doing in the book. We can avoid doing that and still say, well, this history can help us look, help us identify what this book is actually about, given that it's sort of plotless, Right. It can help us say the problem at the core of this novel is, you know, tied to the things that you're talking about, Tim, which then brings us between the two, the two of the things that the two of you were saying brought me to this question of these priests who are less virtuous, less good mm. than Latour and Valle. How do you say that, Heidi? Vaillant. Vaillant, yeah. Vaillant. Vaillant Latour. Um, so, so there's all these examples of priests who Latour kind of has to, you know, humble. <laughs> um, and then there's some that just get thrown off cliffs. Um, <laughs> and how, how do you respond to those, to those guys? We've got the one um, uh, who, 
uh, he's considered favorably, but he collects parrots, right? It was, is that father, right. um, Jesus? Yes. Um, and he, he's generally, he, father Latour kind of views him as a little simple minded. It seems like maybe a little bit, um, uh, he's not caught up yeah, in the complexity. Quite, right. He's just, yeah. But, but, but weird, but interesting, interestingly, not weirdly, he's blind and, or, or going blind. And then you have these other priests who are, you know, greedy or, um, gluttonous. Um, was it Gallegos who is a little bit too consumed by fine food and hunting? Mm. Um, and so is Balthazar right. as well. Yeah. And then we're going to meet more if I'm not mistaken. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so it seems like it seems like he is not just going from place to place where the people themselves are living in, as the book puts it, concubinage or where the children aren't baptized. But he goes to those places and finds priests who have kind of abdicated their responsibilities, um, who are not doing what they've been sent there to do um, or who have been consumed by, you know, opportunity <laughs> um they've kind of given given themselves up to temptation of, of some form or another um and so he has to restore order by getting rid of the people that have been sent there not just by going there and he, he's not doesn't have to solve the problem of the natives in other words he seems like it seems like he's the larger problem that he has to solve has to do with people who were sent there to bring ostensibly to bring the civilization that Tim, that you're talking about, but that abdicated that responsibility that didn't, that aren't doing what they were sent there to do. Um, and so that, that almost, it seems to add a level of comp- complexity to what his job is. Were you going to say something, Tim? Well, I, what interests me is when father Latour approaches these men, um, there's a casual in, in these other priests, there's sort of a casual regard for, the uh, repairing, I'll say repairing the sacraments, you know, like father Latour is there to um, perform marriages and the baptized children and to baptize children. And the priest who has been in charge up until that moment is like, Hey, we'll get to it when we can. And I, I've, yeah. And for father Latour, this, this seems like something that no, this cannot wait. This is the exact problem with you, mister, is that you don't understand that this is not something that we can continue to put off. And there's a kind of you urgency. Don't value this. You don't yeah, value urgency, it. Yeah. yeah. And so when he comes you, in um, and he <laughs> performs these baptisms and marriages, there's an urgency to his action that is not understood by the existing priest. And therein lies the whole problem for Father Latour. Like the fact that you've been lax in these duties shows that you actually don't really care about these duties. What actually shows that like, you are not supposed to be doing, you should not be doing this job. You need to be relieved of your duties. It's so interesting because she starts the book. I mean, obviously there's the prologue, but once she gets going with Latour, we talked about this last week, it's about solitude. And it's, and she's so focuses so much and just describes so vividly the wildness of the landscape. There's almost something Cormac McCarthy-ish about it, yeah. right? Yes. Um, but then as we go, that wildness and that solitude is heightened by the failures of the other clergy around him rather than the other clergy around him being 
solutions for that wildness and that solitude. Like he doesn't go there and find kindred spirits very often. Right. Mm -hmm. He finds people who are living in ways that are antithetical to what he is trying to create and preserve. Go ahead, Heidi. Right. Well, and he's a bishop and they are there. So there's, there's such a very strong sense of hierarchy and authority within the Catholic church. Right. That's and, a great point. and he, he really owns that. He, he knows his own authority. He is willing to wield it, but he also has a humility to him. Again, what's, what's really interesting here and very different from the contemporary novel um, is that she's not putting the church under any kind of like whistleblowing scrutiny mm. or trying to blow it up as a corrupt institution. And it's the the church is just as much a setting, a neutral setting in the novel as the landscape mm. itself. Um, so she's not, she's pointing out and, you know, my favorite person to quote this year, Solzhenitsyn, exactly what Solzhenitsyn says, the dividing line of good and evil goes through every human heart. The church is not being scrutinized necessarily, but these, to your point, David, this priest is, is he, is he a good man? Right. Um, and, and Bishop and the Bishop comes in and makes an institutional decision on behalf of the church um, and and he it's very clear he's not ambitious for power he actually just really wants to help purify the church um, for the sake of the people in the land but what I also love 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 about him um, he is a bit idealized in the novel there's nobody I think as good as him but that's okay with me again I find it very soothing and just like good for my soul to read about a good man and a kind of a wider zeitgeist that just seems to want to attack the hero right um, and so I really like this uh, but another thing that I, I just love about him is that he is not there to impose the church on the native cultures who are resistant to it you know, he and Vaillant, they both, they go in and they offer baptism and they offer marriages. And if people don't want it, they move on. They try to convince them, but they're not there to like impose European cultural values on the native peoples. They accept the yeah, culture. Unlike Gallegos. They are respectful to the culture. Yeah. And then, and, and then, but they're like, but also we are the church and we have something to offer spiritually. Um, and that's goes, and again, that's, that's in direct opposition to kind of the, the zeitgeist cultural narrative, which is that, you know, the white European man comes in and tries to impose European culture and then does violence to native cultures. That's not what's going on in this novel, at least from Latour. Do you think he's responding to, um, or trying to, um, I don't know. Heal wounds. Uh, heal wounds or apologize for people that did do that. I think if the novel was written today, that would be a more of a major theme in it. I'm not sure that when Willa Cather was writing, there was um, any kind of like intense public outrage ab about colonialism the way there is today. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that it's there within the novel and it's addressed within the novel, but it's not the major problem of the novel to your point about are we if we're trying to find the problem of the novel. Um, the problem of the novel is not native cultures the problem isn't european culture the problem really isn't but but she's exploring the culture um but not indicting it yeah yeah tim were you going to say something i was going to ask heidi heidi said that she found the book really soothing and i do too 
but I was going to ask, did you, um, did you get scared during the chapter about the, um, the murderer when the priest and father Viant, no, say this, say his name again. I'm the one now who's struggling with the last names. That's right. S- yep. Viant. Viant. Mm-hmm. Um, it goes in the throat. Viant. Proud of me, Brandon LeBlanc. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a soothing read. It's, it's kind of, um, yeah, it's a soothing read, but that episode where they ride up to the house and the abused woman is inside. Were you at all nervous? And actually just to kind of take us back there for a second, I just want to read the opening, the description of the man uh, who answers the door, who we'll find out a little bit later is a murderer. So this is on page 66. It's both beautiful writing and it's also, it's harrowing. As they rode up to the door, a man came out bareheaded, and they saw to their surprise that he was not a Mexican, but an American of a very unprepossessing type. He spoke to them in some drawling dialect they could scarcely understand and asked if they wanted to stay the night. During the few words they exchanged with him, Father Latour felt a growing reluctance to remain even for a few hours under the roof of this ugly, evil-looking fellow. He was tall, gaunt, and ill-formed, with a snake-like neck terminating in a small bony head. Under his close-clipped hair, this repellent head showed a number of thick ridges, as if the skull joinings were overgrown by layers of superfluous bone. With its small rudimentary ears, this head had a positively malignant look. The man seemed not only half-human, but he was the only householder on the lonely road to Mora. Just as a side note, he has no neighbors. He's a little bit like the Cyclops in Odysseus. Oh, that's a great connection. I love that. Um, How did that scene make you nervous? Yeah. So I remember the first time when I read this novel, I thought that this was like the introduction to the problem of the book. I like thought he was going to be the bad guy. Yeah, right. You know, and yeah, you know, it comes oh, to the archbishop, the, and this yeah, is like, like, the, the story's guy. just getting going, right? Like, um, because I still didn't understand the episodic nature of the narrative. So, and then it just like resolved within a couple pages, and I was like, "What just happened? Mm. That was it? That's it? Yeah." So, um, like they got away. There wasn't even like a shootout at the corral. Like, so, um, <laughs> I I was surprised. To be fair, there was that. barely a shootout at the actual corral. So. At the actual corral. Fair enough. Yes. So, um, but so, yeah, I mean, he's, you, that whole thing about like him killing his own children and that, I mean, that's just repulsive. Um, again, she's, she, we do have this idealized main character, right? So she's got to create some a lot of conflict in order to explore these things that she is exploring, the fragments between the cultures, the fragmentation, excuse me, between the cultures and this kind of conflict. And, and um, so she does that in the episodic form uh, rather than centered in the main character. And this particular episode, to your point, is like so menacing and she doesn't, and her incredible power of description. Like I can see this guy in my head. Like I, I have like a very vivid very, very vivid mental images of every one of these episodes in this, in this book. And I'm not 
like a visual thinker. Um, I'm like a very words auditory kind of person. So it does take a lot to give me a very vivid image. And I think that's why I, one of the reasons why I, I really love Cather is because she's so skilled at that. One of the things I noticed about that scene was, um, so, so she warns them and I'm trying to find the line right now, but, um, Latour, he, he, he references, he, he's, that he thinks one of the saints, I believe is watching over them. Hmm, St. Joseph. Yeah. And there's this, um, I can't find the line. He's an interesting character in comparison to someone like Kit Carson. If you look at this figure of the American West, you think of like, you know, a tracker or some kind of a soldier or a cowboy or someone who has this ability to read the landscape and make decisions based on that and rescue people and defeat the bad guy. And they have this great skill set that is particular to the place, right? To, to the kind of person who would thrive in that place. Latour is not like that. He, he, his, his, the, his warning signals are perk up because, you know, because he's prayerful hmm. because he has a sensitivity for what God, the Holy Spirit, the saints, whatever version of that you want to kind of point towards in the way you're talking about it. He believes that they're watching out for him. He has a spiritual sensitivity in a way that Kit Carson has a sort of sensitivity to sagebrush, mountain paths, hmm. the signs of enemies and things like that around him. And because of that, he makes decisions that someone like Kit Carson might make in a moment when he feels like there might be an imminent threat. Tim, you just unmuted yourself, which is the universal symbol signal for, I want to speak now. It's like Zoom. No, 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 no. Right? no. What was going on behind the scenes was um, I'm sitting in my dad's office and someone printed something on the printer. Oh, okay. And okay. so I muted it because the Got printer it. was like, <laughs> you know, it's like so loud. Wait, could you do that again? <laughs> <laughs> oh wait, someone's printing something again. <laughs> okay. All right. So you don't you don't, don't No, I'm sorry. False alarm, okay. David. False alarm. Well, what about you, Heidi? Now that we've now No, that I actually <laughs> love that. I think that's so good. This and and I think it sheds a lot of light on why choosing a religious figure for the central character of this novel, right? Because you could you could put him as a secondary character and it's Kit Carson or a cowboy or, you know, a Mexican caballero what a, that um, that's navigating this landscape, right? But that's the traditional American hero. And by giving, by kind of bestowing the heroic central character upon a priest who's a newcomer to the land. I know he lived in Ohio before he came here. Um, and so he had, you know, he kind of dipped his toes in and now he's on the frontier. Um, by, by doing that, there is this sense of um, displacement from the traditional American hero who is a hero of the land, a hero, a physical hero, a, a hero of great, um, you know, kind of still that solitary piece, right? Because the traditional American hero is still a lone wolf, him against the world. But you have here a, a spiritual hero, which is, to your point, very different from 
the American kind of cowboy or explorer that you might have in Kit Carson or something. So I think that that's a really compelling point. Um, and it gives us the opportunity then to observe the American mm-hmm. spirit um, for, through the eyes of an outsider who's also doing something good for the land. Hmm. And the, the American spirit is more than just Kit Carson's spirit too, right? There's someone right. is doing something very loud right outside this, this room. We all so have I so many problems. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Water filters, printers, whatever's going on I, there. Yeah, I don't even know what it is. I'm in the basement of the shop. You're yeah. the one in the dank basement I don't, right now. I, I literally am. And I don't know how it's possible that there is a noise that I can hear right now. Um, someone must be working on the foundation of the building or something. Um, you guys, I want to um, bring something up. I, I, I'm reluctant because, again, it's been... I'll, this is my second read and my first read is so dim in my memory. But I find it really interesting that Father Latour, we see plenty of opportunities where he's alone. He's in a time of reflection. He's, he's in a time of prayer. But we're not often privy to what is going on inside of him. Like we mm-hmm. know presumably what he's doing, but we don't get to listen if that makes sense. Whereas, again, I'm going to compare this book to The Power and the Glory, which is about a priest who's in this wild place and he's attempting to do his duty. And so much of that book is interior to the priest. And I, I, I just find the juxtaposition really fascinating that um, Father Latour's mission is driving him forward. And it's as if his individuality, I don't want to say it doesn't matter. It most certainly does matter because he's an individual man who's a, like set about on this great task. But Catherine is not bringing forward all of the feels for Father Latour. What she's really highlighting is the actions that he's taking. Um, And I can fully imagine, as I'm sure that you guys can, the moments of turmoil and the moments of like confusion that are facing Father Latour in these really complex and thorny circumstances. Yet we're just thus far in the book, we've been given very little access to that. And I wonder what you guys make of that lack of access. State the question again. We're not given access to many of Father Latour's inner thoughts. We get some, but not many, especially when compared to the whiskey priest in The Power and the Glory. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. So why, are we, why do you think that we're not been, being given much access to Father Latour's inner, inner heart, inner thoughts? So in chapter three of part three, on page 102, there's a section where we do get into his inner thoughts. It's right before the legend of the Frey Baltazar. Mm. Um, and it's, so it's the end of this, this section. It's the last thing we hear from him in part three. Um, so I'll read, I want to read a couple of paragraphs here. In the gray dust of the enclosed garden, two thin half-dead peach trees still struggled with the drought the kind of unlikely tree that grows up from an old root and never bears. 
by the wall yellow suckers put out from an old vine stump, very thick and hard, which must once have borne its ripe clusters. Built upon the northeast corner of the cloister, the bishop found a loggia, Logia, roofed but with open sides, looking down on the white pueblo and the tawny rock and over the wide plain below. There he decided he would spend the night. From this loggia, he watched the sun go down, watched the desert become dark, the shadows creep upward. Abroad in the plain, abroad in the plain, the scattered mesa tops, red with the afterglow, one by one lost their light, like candles going out. He was on a naked rock in the desert, in the Stone Age, a prey to homesickness for his own kind, his own epoch, for a European man and his glorious history of desire and dreams. Through all the centuries that his own part of the world had been changing like the sky at daybreak, this people had been fixed, increasing neither in numbers nor desires, rock turtles on their rock. Something reptilian, he felt there, something that had endured by immobility, a kind of life out of reach like the crustaceans in their armor. So I was thinking a lot about this passage for one, because it's beautiful. It's great Gatsby-ish. It's straight out of Fitzgerald, which maybe Fitzgerald comes straight out of Cather. But what I was wondering is, do you read this section as being in his head mm-hmm. and being his mind at work? Or do you read this truly as a third-person omniscient narrator telling us what to think? Um, because if, if we read it as being in his head, there are more opportunities to be in his head than it seems like on the surface. Um, because I do. I think I read it as being in, his, being in our character's head, being him in the explanation of what he's thinking, experiencing, feeling, um, processing. So how do you... How do you approach that? I mean, do you think this is the narrator, Tim? You're kind of you're giving a, you're giving a sign of waffling, like maybe not. I kind of no, am waffling, but not yes. Because I'm waffling. I feel like, go ahead, go ahead, David. Uh, okay, the book has the occasional moment like this that pop up, where the book briefly, very briefly, gives us some sort of interpretation. Either the author is doing some interpretive work here, or it's some kind of thoughtfulness inside the character's head. It doesn't happen a lot, but it happens sometimes. So if it's the character, we're getting to know the character more than maybe it seems like on the surface, like I said. So, so you're, you're saying no. You don't think that's the character. You think that's our omniscient narrator? I, I'm waffling because I really can see it both ways. But just I'm going to read the thing again, and then I'm going to kind of mark where I think if there is interior, here's where it begins. Okay. In the gray dust of the enclosed garden, Two thin, half-dead peach trees still struggled with the drought, the kind of unlikely tree that grows up from an old root and never bears. By the wall, yellow suckers put out from an old vine stump, very thick and hard, which must once have borne its ripe cluster. So, first paragraph, it's exterior. Next paragraph. Built on the northeast corner of the cloister, the bishop found a logia roofed, found Elogia roofed, but with open sides, looking down on the white Pueblo and the tawny rock over a wide plain below. There he decided he would spend the night. From this Logia, he watched the sun go down, watched the desert become dark, the shadows creep upward. Abroad, so we're still, it's still description of what's exterior to him. Abroad in the plain, the scattered mesa tops, red with the afterglow, one by one lost their lights, like candles going out. 
I think that is just a great, wonderful sentence. I'm just going to read the sentence again and look what the author does. Abroad in the plain, the scattered mesa tops, red with the afterglow, one by one lost their light, like candles going out. So we go from exterior, exterior, exterior to exterior, which reminds Father Latour of something else, candles going out. Right. Yeah. I love he was that. on a naked rock in the desert in the Stone Age. Wait. Is he really in the Stone Age? No, it's like his, his mental workings have taken him into, back into the Stone Age. Mm-hmm. A prey for homesickness of his own kind, his own epoch, for European man and his glorious history of desire and dreams. Through all the century that his own part of the world had been changing, like the sky at daybreak, this people had been fixed, increasing neither in numbers nor desires, rock turtles on their rocks. Something reptilian he felt there, something that he endured in by immobility, the kind of life out of reach, like a crustaceans in their armor. I just think that sentence was just so really so smart that mm-hmm. without signaling, hey, I'm going to tell you what he's thinking now. She does that at the end mm-hmm. of this sentence, very subtly bringing him into his own mind and his own sense of his own history and so there's even in his um, interior thought, there's something so firmly tied to the exteriority of his life. Yeah. So she does this thing where she plays with the notion of third person omniscient because it's the, the notion of omniscience is tricky because she'll say things like at the previous before what I read, beside the church, besides the church proper, there was the cloister, large, thick walled, which must have required an enormous labor of portage from the plane. Mm. Or even the part that you read at the end there, you read after I read it. By the wall, yellow suckers put out from an old vine stump, very thick and hard, which must once have borne its ripe clusters. And if it's truly omniscient, the narrator is going to say, which once, which once bore its ripe clusters, yeah. or which required an enormous labor of portage from the plane. What she's doing there is we've got a third person narrator who does know what's going on, but it's also a narrator who is interpreting what they see. So it's both the narrator who is outside of it and the character who is in the moment. And that's where I think we get this sense, the, 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 the um, effect of a memory novel really comes out because she does things like that. Great point. So it, 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 it engages with us on the level of question, like, where the character is asking questions about the things that he is seeing. And yet it's also engaging with us in the sense that we can trust what this person is telling us is true. So he's omniscient to the degree that we can trust him, but he's also an individual who has experienced things on a very human level. And she, she transitions in and out of that so seamlessly that we can be swept away by it a little bit confused by it in certain moments, but not to the degree where we're like, disoriented yeah Heidi go ahead Tim and I would just talked for like five minutes about six lines no I loved it I think that I before you asked the question I thought of it and this and the the latter option as the third person per third person this is why I'm on podcast third, this the is thir- why the third I, yes. Persian yeah that was the, third person omniscient <laughs> um 
And I think you've just convinced me that there's more to it than that. And that that's part of the brilliance of this particular novel and the voice of the novel. Um, she does that with other characters too. Um, Hakinto specifically, when she tells us what it is that Hakinto, the guide, Bishop Latour's guide, why it is that he trusts the bishop. Um, and she kind of gets behind his eyes for a second. Um, she does that. In That's the, a great point. That, yeah. That, so there's, it's more than just our main character. There's other characters that she, um, that yeah. she kind of slips seamlessly behind into their motives and their feelings. Um, mm-hmm. and, so it's third person omniscient that's slipping into the voice of particular characters. Yeah. And, and, and not a lot of authors can pull that off. I mean, and not a lot of authors can just make up a genre too. I mean, there's Tolstoy, like he can do whatever he wants. Um, <laughs> Tolstoy there's, you know, there's, I, I think that Willa Cather is, I mean, she's well known amongst um, literary kinds of people, but I still think she's underrated in the larger vision of the American canon. Um, not enough people read her. She's actually really easy to read and incredibly brilliant storyteller. Um, but what you're describing is pretty masterful. And I didn't really even see it. There's kind of a blurring in the passage that we read of what is exterior to our protagonist and what is interior to our protagonist. And I, and I seems very deliberate. And I also wonder Heidi, if this has something to do with why we find the book so comforting. Part of the reason that I think we enjoyed the whiskey priest so much in the power and the glory is because his anxieties in some way are our anxieties. You, we can identify yes, with him, right? Raskolnikov, mm-hmm. his anxieties are our anxieties. There's something like that Dostoevsky and that Graham Greene can name these deep interior kind of like fountains of our own shortcomings and our own hopes that's what I think drives those narratives. But I think there's something about this book that there's kind of a, a merging of what is happening inside Father Latour and what is outside of Father Latour that gives a stability to his conscience, which is exactly what this narrative needs, if it is doing what I think it's doing, that this is a story of... Um, a man who is bringing order and harmony into this part of the world. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so if that's what his task is, then we should be able to see that. And we are seeing that in this kind of blending of what is inside of him with the kind of like firmness of the world and the objective world that's around him. Mm-hmm. That's well said. That's one of the the most interesting things about a third person omniscient narrator is when you find ways to, um, for that for that narrator to present subjective experience. You know, sometimes you'll get you'll get like she'll jump around from character to character in a third person narrator. But the really great writers manage to find a way to make it feel subjective, even though in reality, what you're getting is sort of a narrator who knows what's going on. So how do you, when you, when the, when the narrator 
doesn't have doubts about what's happening, how do you create subjective experience? And there's a real subtlety in that that takes a lot of, well, I don't know, just a lot of skill. Mm-hmm. Um, and it allows you, I think, to, um, to do interp to, I was going to say to do interpretive work, but I don't want to say to, in- to offer an interpretation of the story, but to create characters who are trying to interpret the world around them. So what you, what we can count on is that what the character is seeing is real. Like we can count on the, the narrator being reliable in that sense. But we can also then understand that the subjective experience of specific characters within those experiences can be sort of complicated, can be sort of like they can be a little bit disoriented themselves even as we can trust what's happening. Hmm. And I feel like that's something like what's happening here. Does that that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, we should probably begin wrapping this up. We've been going for an hour and 15 minutes or so. Do you guys want to have any final thoughts or anything? Anything you want to, that we, do you feel like, why did we not talk about this? We, we touched on priests being thrown over cliffs. Um, We touched on, you know, the, uh, the, what's his name? Scales. Yeah. Yeah. The villainous bad guy. Yeah. Um, th- we, I guess there's, there's lots of food we didn't, we didn't talk about. I know. Lots of feasting, but I think we're going to have more chances. Yeah, I think we are. Feasting and food. Are. Tim, you got any final thoughts? I'm glad that we had the conversation about what is thematically tying these things together, because I think that could become an obstacle for a reader who, uh, doesn't know what's going on. I mean, like might know what's going on uh, from episode to episode, but doesn't know why all these books are assembled, all these stories are assembled into a single book. So I'm glad we kind of reasoned a little bit. I'm not sure that we like, arrived at a really firm conclusion. I feel like I've put forward, you know, the institution of tradition you, you and have order. A thesis. Yeah, I have a thesis. And hopefully that's serviceable throughout the remainder of the book. But I at least... I'm really glad that we talked about that because I think that could be an obstacle for people who just see this as just like uh, a, a mis- miscellany of episodes. Heidi, hmm. do you have any thoughts, any further thoughts on that before we go? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I agree with that. I think that the episodic nature is the strength of the novel, not at all mm-hmm. a weakness, but it it does take some catch up, I think, on the part of the the reader to a little bit of grace at the beginning to get used to that. Um, I really like the story of Father Vaillant getting the mules. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. that's great. Um, there's, I I think in the in the episodes as, and we touched on this. Oh, a little we gotta bit talk in this. about Father Vaillant later. I I know I. I love him. He's he's such a great um, contrast, just as heroic as Latour, just as dedicated, just as devout, just as determined. Um, he provides a little bit of lightheartedness, I think, along the way, and but he also has his, the, a, a great depth to him. But he makes he makes Bishop Latour a little bit less, um, excuse me, a little more approachable. I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because Latour is so idealized and um, uh, so, and, you know, so cultured and he's not very approachable and Viant really is. And so I think in some ways he's a bit of like a, a John the Baptist kind of. Um, he's a man figure. of the earth. Yeah. Um, and the, 
the way he gets those mules, I just think is awesome. I like, I love it. How he just, he knows exactly how to um, be really honoring and respectful uh, to, to this wealthy Mexican landowner while also still like manipulating him a little bit and calling upon his piety and making him feel like a great man of God for doing it. And it's just great um, that the priests are not above, you know, asking to be supported. Um, and I just think it's great. So I love that part. And Vian's a great character. And I absolutely love all of the scenes with Jaquinto and, and as the guide, as Bishop Latour's guide, there's a few more um, in the novel and they're like, they're just, I just love them for some reason. I love this like meandering priest in the desert with, with a guide to show him where to, um, how to like navigate the landscape. I think it's just beautiful. So. Tim, anything else? No. David, do you have a closing thought? Uh, well, a minute ago, I mean, I said we need to talk about Vion because mm-hmm. um, I need to keep reading. But my my um, my reading of him, my experience with him was less charitable than yours. I didn't care for him so much. So oh, really? I keep reading and figure out, A, did I Go confuse on. him with somebody else? <laughs> or... Because all the names after a while do get a little bit, you know. Well, there's so many characters and um, they come in and out. Yeah. Um, but I need to keep reading. Um, there's something, just something off-putting about him. So I've, I've got to keep reading with that in mind. That's kind of like what I'm going to be looking for is figure out. Can you tell us like where that comes from? Do you have, like, do you know where that comes from? Probably my um, German heritage. Just generally skeptical of French people. <laughs> Fair um, enough. Um, no, not off the top of my head. I don't remember the... Um, Is he too pragmatic, David? Is he too... He's far from an idealist. Mm, no, I don't think that was it. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. This is not great, great uh, podcasting for me to think about it. Maybe you could, maybe at the top of our next episode, we can talk about, it can, it can just be a bannered David's grievance against father Vaillant. So that just escalated. Really. Right. I don't. So for yeah. me, part, part of it is so I'm sitting on a broken chair here and I'm, it's very tenuous. As is that father Vaillant's like um, error? No, David, that's yours. Right. I know. Well, didn't have a lot of options okay um you you talked about the mules scene that and he they're both there for that one right or no bishop latour is not there right it's just father Vian. right okay mm-hmm. so i took him i found him to be less appealing during that scene prefer for example than mm-hmm. you seem to mm-hmm. um so i've got to think about why that is he's real bossy I mean, he does come in and he's like, I'm going to do the marriages now. Go get the people. He tells him how to, does it, it's because he tells him how to cook. I know that's what it is. Oh, there that's it what is. it is. There <laughs> it is, David. He comes in and prepares his own dinner because he doesn't want stewed mutton again. Oh. You're like, leave me alone, <laughs> you French imperialist. Yeah. <laughs> I'm making maybe. bratwurst. I'm a German. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Although I'd much rather cook French food than German food. Um, right. I can say that as a German, right? Um, Heidi and I can both only silently agree. 
If we did, no, if I'm we are outspokenly saying yes, totally, totes agree. <laughs> Although I do like a good like sauerkraut on a bratwurst. No doubt. Good. Yeah, I love it. Well, yeah, like everybody a, likes like that. A spicy mustard. Well, yeah, because I'm, not, I'm I have a soul. Right, exactly. <laughs> as I, as I you like to me. say, I have a soul. Yeah. Um. Okay, I'm gonna think about this for next time. Okay. Um. The, <laughs> I gotta think about like I don't think that I took his response to like, oh no, I can't, I can't ride these. Like, I don't think I, the way he was responding to the idea of being offered the mules and all that kind of stuff. I didn't read that as being, as being per- portrayed as virtuous in the way that you were. Mm. So I need to go back and read that. I need to think about it. I need to examine. I yeah. I need to examine my yeah. own soul. <laughs> all the things one Maybe has to do. Maybe have a brought worse. Exactly. Yes. All the things that one has to do while, while reading, right? While yeah. reading <laughs> right. any good novel. Exactly. Um, so with that, that will be my thing that I'm looking looking towards is how virtuous are we supposed to see these characters as? And I think that's actually worth thinking about even for Latour as well. Agreed. Um, is he supposed to be this, how pure is he? Um, is is a, probably a good question to ask most most key characters in any book. How pure are their motives? <laughs> it's probably one of those great questions mm-hmm. to just ask in general. We Whether should just ask people that. Right. Just over dinner. Right. Please have some bratwurst. How pure of soul are you? <laughs> How pure are your motives? <laughs> on a scale right of now? one to ten. <laughs> Can you chart it on yeah. an XY axis? Right. Could you please? Right. Yeah. right. I'd like to think about what the what are the two axes <laughs> here on X Y axis for, for on the on the purity scale. <laughs> Right. I'll say, how does your self-revelation match with my (laughs) judgment of you that I've already made? I'm the y-axis. My judgment of you is the y-axis. Your judgment of yourself is the x-axis. Let's see which quadrant we collectively Mm -hmm. end up in. Mm -hmm. Um, Well... We should probably now that nobody our... wants to be friends with us. Anymore. Right, nobody <laughs> wants to be friends with us. We have no listeners of this podcast anymore. Uh, we're never going to have dinner with anybody but the three of us. Um, and, you know, <laughs> like my children have to have dinner with me, but um, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Same with me. Right. We so make them. My children eat every night. Every night. They're like, where's the food? I'm like, where's again? the food? <laughs> We did this. We just did this like four hours ago. I literally ago. made you food yesterday. So. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Now I'm just thinking about how I have to feed my children in like two hours. <laughs> no, like less than two hours. It's five o'clock I was going to say, yeah. <clears throat> All right, Tim. All right, David. You have to feed people too. I do. You do. They probably want to eat too. They're going to be upset if you don't feed them. I want to ask, what are you guys making for dinner tonight? Do you know already? Haven't, no, I haven't thought about it at all. Okay. So, so that's part of the problem here. That's why I'm, that's why I'm annoyed that you brought it up. Yeah. Well, with that, for Heidi, White, that for, <laughs> for Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh, I'm David Kern. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.